When I got my first real job after college, um, I had some time on my hands, so I decided to go to the local Red Cross facility and sign up uh, to be a lifeguard. Um, thought that would be kind of a cool certification to have. So I went through lifeguard training and um, realized very quickly how bad of a swimmer I was in comparison to other people in the class. Um, most of them pretty strong swimmers. They made us do some strange things. I don't know if you've ever been through lifeguard training before, but um, put cement blocks down in the bottom of a pool 12 foot down and tell you to go down and get them and swim back up to the top, put them on the side of the pool, go back down and get more, just to demonstrate body strength and capacity and ability to pull heavy weights off the bottom of a pool. Um, about the sixth week into the class, the chief instructor said to us, there will come a day when you will encounter an individual who is drowning. And that individual in that moment in time will see you as their only source of survival. You will be what they consider to be a life jacket. And as you approach them, you will see that they will be flailing out of control. Physically, they will try and overpower you. If you're not a strong enough swimmer, they will climb up on top of you, they will scratch you, claw you, wound you, anything to get themselves up out of the water in order to survive. And he said in that moment, you'll have to make a decision because you'll have one of two choices. You can approach them and get close enough for them to grab you, and at the point where they begin to take you under as well, you can punch them in the face and knock them out. thought, well, there's an option, okay, <laughs> hadn't considered that before. Um, he said, your other option is, if that doesn't work, and they're still fighting you and taking you under, your only other alternative is to dive deep because they will let you go when you go deep. In order to go deep, they will not want to go under the water with you, and they will release you, allowing you to approach them from the bottom, taking them around the neck, and bringing them in. I found profound spiritual truth in that illustration when he shared that. In thinking of the people that we approach as individuals who need to be rescued, who are flailing around looking for all kinds of solutions, and in for order for us to approach them properly, we have to go deep into the Word of God. We have to approach it in such a way that we can go underneath and come up with the strength and the ability to surround them and speak truth into their life. You will find this morning in Revelation chapter 10 an explanation of how important that is to ingest the Word of God into your life, perhaps in a way that you've never considered before. Before we dive in this morning, I'm going to ask you to spend some time with me in prayer looking at this text. So let's do that together. Father, we step into this arena not lightly. Everyone in this room, every single individual comes in here with some degree of need or baggage or hurt in their life, some issue that they're dealing with at this very moment in time. Father, I ask that you would give us the supernatural capacity to set aside whatever distractions we might have in our life right now to approach this teaching with eyes wide open hearts that are ready to learn what you have to say 
so that we can take these truths and apply them to our unique set of circumstances. Father, we believe that your Spirit gives application every time Scripture is uttered, that you speak through your Word. It's alive and it's active. That's what you promised us. So we look to you now as the provider of this truth, this Word that we have in front of us. Give us understanding and insight in ways that we could not have had without the capacity of your Holy Spirit superintending over us. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our King. Amen. At this point in Revelation, where we step into in Revelation chapter 10, where we left off with Revelation chapter 9, was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it? We got to the very last verse, and we read, and they did not repent. All these horrible things are happening. Half of the world's population has been killed. Halfway through the tribulation, you see this massive destruction. The world is engulfed in demons who have just ushered up out of the belly of hell. And in the midst of that, chapter 9 ends with, and they did not repent. All those who did not get killed by the demons still shook their fist at God and said, we will not turn our heart toward you. So as we step into chapter 10, we find it as kind of an interlude. In a musical score, you have interludes. This chapter 10 is an interlude. It's a gasp for breath. It's a moment to be reminded about what God is doing. So before jumping into chapter 10, verse 1, I want to point you to chapter 10, verse 7. So if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open them up to Revelation chapter 10. If you didn't bring one with you, they're in the pew racks in front of you. And if you don't own one, they're there for your benefit. We'd love for you to take one with you when you leave today so you have a copy of God's Word for your own. Feel free to mark in it if you're going to own it yourself and take it with you. You can do that. We want you to study and write down your notes. So at Revelation chapter 10, verse 7 starts off this way. Verse 7, you'll see it on the screen. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. Do you love a mystery? My wife loves CSI. She loves mysteries. God has mysteries throughout Scripture. Some things he chooses to reveal to us. Some things he plays very close to the vest. Other things he chooses not to reveal until the very last days. Things that you'll learn about today. So in the Old Testament, we find prophets who knew things about the future, but only portions. They hadn't put the details together yet. So here we find this time coming when this last trumpet is going to be sounded. That's what you just read. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, sound what? He's going to sound the seventh trumpet. Remember, you've seen the seven seals, six trumpets. The seventh one is about to sound. And in the time when this seventh trumpet is about to sound, there will be a consummation of all things that God revealed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, and in the future. It all is consummated with this blowing of the seventh trumpet because then the bowl judgments begin to be revealed and Christ's kingdom will be established. And it is a remarkable study for us. So first, we're going to see that John's about to get a grip on reality. He's come to this midpoint of the tribulation, 
And he's getting this interlude to watch this amazing scene. So join me in chapter 10 and verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Do you know there's more than 60 references, six, zero, 60 references to angels just in the book of Revelation alone? We find this word that's used here, strong angel, is a Greek word, and it's the word isakuras, and it means this, forcible. He's valiant. He's a warrior. Look at the definition on the screen for isakuras. Forcible, boisterous, mighty, powerful, strong, valiant. That's a warrior. He's speaking of a warrior angel. Apparently, in Scripture, all angels excel in strength. They're all mighty. Some are more mighty than others. You find reference to angels in the book of Psalms also. Specifically, you'll see on the screen Psalms 103.20. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. That use of mighty is a Hebrew word, and it's the word gibor. And it means almost the same thing as the Greek translation. Powerful by implication, a warrior, a champion, a chief, strong, valiant. If you have your Bibles and you don't mind flipping back to the Old Testament, join me in Daniel chapter 10. You're going to see an eyewitness description of an angel. Daniel, eye to eye, saw an angel and gave us a recording of what they look like. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 5. Now remember at this point, Daniel is standing on the banks of a river, the Tigris, and he's praying for his nation. And he's praying repentance saying, we have turned astray, God. And he had prayed for weeks by this point. At this moment, an angel shows up and it terrifies him. Look at chapter 10 of Daniel and verse 5, and this is what it says. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Do you know what Daniel did when he saw that? He fainted. He passed out. He did a face plant in the beach of the river. Because it was such an awesome sight. His voice rolled like thunder. Now, John says, I saw another strong angel. The word that's used there is alos, A-L-L-O-S, and it means another of the same kind, meaning he'd seen six angels with trumpets, and now he sees this mighty angel that looked like them, but different, another of the same kind. Some people believe this to be Jesus. I'm going to show you deductive reasoning, the way I take apart Scripture, and you'll understand why I come to the conclusion this is actually just a powerful, not just, this is a powerful angel, but it's not Jesus, and I'll show you the reasoning behind it. First of all, the first conclusion is Jesus is never called an angel in the book of Revelation any place. Angels are angels. Jesus is referred to as the Lamb, the King of Kings, or the Lord Jesus Christ. Second one, other places in Scripture, like Daniel chapter 10 that you just saw, 
Angels are referred to with splendor and glory, flaming eyes, but yet very clearly angels. Third one, there's no evidence any place in Scripture that Jesus comes down midway through the tribulation. Fourth one, Jesus wouldn't be swearing an oath to God. He is God. So you're going to see in just a few more verses that this angel swears an oath, takes an oath before God. Jesus would not be doing that. But amazingly, this angel has some characteristics like the Son of God, like Jesus. Look at the description in your Bible. Very closely it says, His clothing is a cloud. The rainbow circles His head. His face shines like the sun, and His feet like pillars of fire. So think about how Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection on a cloud, surrounded by a cloud. Clouds speak of God's arrival, God's presence. You see that in the time of Mount Sinai when we studied the book of Exodus. So clouds are always associated with the arrival of God. And then we see this rainbow, and he says specifically, the rainbow encircled his head. This is the same rainbow that John had just seen encircling the throne. Now he sees it encircling the head, sitting like a crown. What did we learn last week when we did a little review of Revelation? That when God showed his rainbow, he's reminding us of his faithfulness and his mercy. Think back to the time of Noah and the ark, Genesis chapter 6. God puts his rainbow in the sky and said, This is my reminder to you that I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. So what we see here is an image, this rainbow surrounding his head, is a reminder that in the midst of his wrath, God still has mercy, and he's faithful to his word. So we get these first two reminders here, and then it says his face is shining like the sun. If we could lift the roof off this building right now and look up at the noonday sun, it would be so intense that we could only stare at it for maybe a second. Two, three seconds, we might damage the retina in our eyes. That's how brilliant, John said, his face was. This is an angel. Can you imagine the brilliance of God the Father? This is a face reflecting the Shekinah glory. Scripture says in 1 Timothy 6 that God dwells in unapproachable light, and no man can look upon him without being destroyed. You can't see the face of God. So John sees the face of this one, and it's glowing with the Shekinah glory. And fourthly, he says his feet are like pillars of fire. We've learned in Revelation along the way that when you see pillars associated with fire, we're seeing God's judgment being represented. So put the pieces together here. John sees the cloud arriving, meaning a message of God is about to arrive. This angel is standing with a book in his hand, and he's got something to say. And very clearly, he's endowed with the power and the authority of God these feet of fire, the voice that sounds like a tumult. And John sees this magnificent image. So this angel is wearing four things. He's wearing the judgment and the glory and the power of God, but he's also wearing the faithfulness of God. That rainbow is a reminder that his word will be fulfilled. So look with me at verse 2. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder 
uttered their voices. So in his hand, he's got this little book, and he straddles from earth to sea, a magnificent image that John is looking at. This book that we're looking at here, a biblion, a scroll, a little book, is what we believe to be the remainder of the scroll that we've already seen opened with the details of the remaining acts of God's judgment during the tribulation period. So first of all, we saw John looking at the seals broken on the scroll. Remember, seal 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and 7 were all popped open by the Lamb, and the scroll opened up. And when the scroll opened up, the trumpets began to sound. Trumpet 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 have been sounded. And then this interlude takes place, and John sees this colossal image standing on the sea and on the shoreline, putting his feet down. And what we're seeing here is a reminder of the bold judgments yet to come, the bold judgments that will be unfolded. And his massive form is reflected in his massive voice. John hears his voice, and what does he say about him? He cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And there's a response to the roar. The word cry that's used there is kradzo. And it means literally a screaming roll. Can't sound like a lion for you, sorry. But this is what he sounds like. John says he sounds like the roar of a lion. His voice is so mighty. And in response, the most unusual thing happens. John hears these seven peals of thunder. Well, there's nothing really all that unusual about thunder, is there? Except this thunder has a voice with it. The seven peals of thunder. So adding to this terrible scene, I mean terrible in a good way, mighty angel coming down in the clouds of God, clothed with God's glory, with a rainbow around his head and a roaring voice straddling earth and sea, and this little book in his hand, John hears these rumblings coming out of heaven. Seven peals of thunder utter their voices, and it would shake you to your very core. Your body would tremble and rumble, just like it would when we get a thunderstorm today. Specifically, the Jewish people, the ancient Jews, understood what he was speaking of here in a way that we've lost in the modern church, not understanding the Old Testament the way that we should. So I want to explain to you what he's seeing here, these seven voices of God the ancient Jews referred to. It's what they called. Isaiah saw this same thing. Isaiah 29.6, you'll see up on the screen. This is what Isaiah wrote. From the Lord of hosts, you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and a loud noise. Let me take you back in time about 15 years. The United States military was involved in a crusade against a drug runner from Bogota, Colombia. This drug runner was known by the name of Manuel Noriega. Some of you might be old enough to remember when he was running the drug scene down in South America and in Central America. He had such a powerful force that they had to bring the American military against him to subdue him. Once the American military figured out where he was at, they decided to take on a strategy of capturing him without costing the lives of many of our soldiers. They set up loudspeakers around his compound and began to play Black Sabbath and Kiss and the Rolling Stones. 
And no, no offense to those guys who play that music, but they played it so loud at such large decibels that the guards of Manuel Noriega began walking out of the compound. After 24 hours of it, they couldn't take it anymore. They amped it up so loud. So sometimes you can think of noise as being like a punishment. So these seven thunders that David writes about in the book of Psalms and Isaiah writes about that you just read are associated with the judgment voice of God and the power of God's majesty. Let me show you up on the screen where this comes from. It's from Psalm 29. Let's see if you can pick out the seven voices of thunder as this verse unrolls. So Psalms 29 and verse 3. This is the way it starts. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says what? Glory. The cedars of Lebanon are what you might think of today as being steel girders that build our skyscrapers. The cedars of Lebanon were the strongest building instrument that they had at this time. It's what they built their mighty sailing ships out of. When you see king's palaces built, you see in the ancient records archaeologically that they had shipped in the cedars of Lebanon to build the building. So what he's essentially saying here is steel girders collapse in his presence. And animals give birth when his voice shudders forth. That's what you're watching David explain. So you've got these seven peals of thunder of God's voice uttering forth a proclamation. So John's seeing this awesome, awesome sight. In the physical world, when we hear thunder roll, we know there's a storm approaching. In the spiritual world, when thunder is rolling, it means there's judgment approaching and it's begin to usher in. So John hears these seven shattering, powerful thunders and they call something out. Look at verse 4. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. So the seven peals of thunder have communicated some type of information. But before John can get his iPad out and start writing it down, God says, wait, no, put that iPad away, John. I don't want you to write this down. Sometimes God communicates truth that he doesn't choose to reveal to us. There is scriptural evidence that God has held some things back. Some things about the last days. Look with me up on the screen at Job 37.5. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. So the seven thunders fall into this category. Things that we hear, but we can't comprehend. Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. He said, I heard inexpressible things. Things which are not fit for a man to repeat, meaning too awesome, too majestic. 
So this indicates to me that there's things that God's going to do in the last days that he chooses not to tell us. Things perhaps that are too awesome or too awful for our minds to comprehend. Things that he chooses to hold back. So he's revealing what we need to know, not necessarily what we want to know. So look at verse 5. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. You notice very subtly planted into that verse is a reminder that Scripture, even in the very last days, the most horrible time on earth, Scripture shows that God is still declared as the creator of the universe, not as one who got things spinning and stepped away and let evolution take over. This angel actually declares and says, I'm going to swear an oath by the creator of the universe. Look at me. Look at this specifically what he does. He lifts up his right hand to heaven and he takes what's known as an omnuo. You see this in the modern court systems today. When someone comes in to testify, they place their right, left hand where? On the Bible. Right hand raised up. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's an omnuo. You know where that comes from? The book of Deuteronomy, where God said a man will raise his hand to take an oath. So you can't really separate church and state activities without taking away the fabric of society. We were founded upon that principle. Most people don't even know that today. When you walk into a courtroom and take an oath, you're taking an omnuo that what I testify, what I'm about to say, God, you can hold me accountable for this. It's a solemn, solemn vow. And God, hold me accountable before it. I'm affirming before him. So this powerful being holds up his right hand and he's got this book, this scroll of God's writings in his left hand. And he makes this oath that something is going to happen. What specifically is he doing here? He's taking an oath on the basis of God as creator of everything. Look at the way it's broken down in your Bible. He breaks it down specifically and swore by him who lives forever and ever. What does he say? Who created heaven and the things in it, the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it that there will no longer be a delay. This is really significant in the day in which you live. In the day in which God is debated as to whether or not he actually exists by many, and then the question, creation or evolution getting to origins, this debate that's going on plays right into the last days because this angel of God says, he is indeed the creator, and on the basis of his creatorship, I'm swearing an oath that everything that's going to happen that's written in this book is about to unfold. So that's what John is watching here, this powerful sight, this angel declaring a truth, and the oath is emphasized on the certainty of God as creator. Don't ever miss that in Scripture. And here's what his oath is, that there will be a delay no longer. The word that's used for delay is chronos, where we get chronology from, for watches, a chronomatic movement. Chronology or chronos means time. There will be no more time. A literal interpretation from the Greek is this. The time is up. 
That's how it's rendered. So this angel announces, time is up. Moves on, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, meaning the trumpet angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets. Do you ever think of God as an evangelist? We tend to think of Billy Graham as an evangelist. God is the original evangelist. The word evangelist is associated with him. It's pronounced this way. Yugaladzi, forget it. It's evangelist, okay? It's a Greek word. And this is the definition for it. To announce good news, especially the gospel, declare or bring tidings. So God announced to the prophets, this is what it's saying, in the Old Testament, he announced to the prophets and taught them the good news of what was coming, but he only gave them bits and pieces. They didn't get it all. The signal for this mystery that's about to unfold that you're learning about is the blowing of the seventh trumpet. He says, when the day is arriving, the angel's about to sound, then the mystery of God's completion is going to come together. Look for the definition of the word mystery up on the screen. Mysterion is the word that's used, and here's how it's defined. To shut the mouth, a secret or a mystery through the idea of a silence imposed. How in the world does that fit into Scripture? Think back to the time of Daniel. If you ever read the book of Daniel, you can see that Daniel had a glimpse of the things that would take place in the book of Revelation. Bits and pieces, but he couldn't put it all together. And then comes John on the scene, and John writes the book of Revelation. And people of the church began to look at Daniel and John and say, oh, that's the mystery. I'm beginning to put the pieces together of what Daniel and John were writing about. Go back to the time of Isaiah. Isaiah was writing about the arrival of the king. We see it now because the mystery's been revealed. But to Isaiah and Daniel, those who were looking to the future, it was a mystery to them that God was going to send a Mashiach. That's why the disciples... They couldn't put it together. They missed it until it got near the end of Jesus' ministry. And they began to sew the pieces together, looking at what the Old Testament prophets had done and weaving it together. The mystery was beginning to be explained to them. This mystery that's being specifically written about here is talking about the mystery of how God is going to bring an end to everything, the consummation of all things. So look with me at verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. Verse 9. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Very interesting that this angel knew exactly what John's reaction was going to be. There's a characteristic there that you need to read into. Angels are created beings. They haven't always existed, but they have lived since before the time of man. And angels have seen how man has responded to God's word throughout time. And he's looking at John and saying to him, John, this is going to taste good to you, but in your stomach. It's going to turn bitter. Because he'd seen this happen before. This is quite strange, to say the least. You ever taken a bite out of a book? 
I bet you have and haven't even known it. This is an ancient idiom from people who have lived long before us, and what it's saying specifically here is, you're consuming the words that you're reading. You're eating the book. You're being stuffed with Torah, the ancient Jews would say. We're filling you up. So that's why God's word throughout Scripture is referred to as the milk or the bread of life, the water, the living water. It's always a food symbolism because it fills us and fills us up. So what he's saying is, I'm going to castillo this. The word literally, castillo, means to devour. Not just to eat it and taste it and sample it, but to gorge yourself upon it. So John is being instructed specifically to know and understand God's Word about what's going to happen in the future, the remaining three and a half years, so that he can actually write it out for us. And he was faithful to do it. That's why you have the record today. He knew, he understood, he digested it. But receiving the Word of God sometimes tastes so sweet, but it does so much to your soul. You know that when we first started studying the book of Revelation 20 weeks ago, I had people stopping me in the hallway and in the parking lot saying, I can't wait, this is so great, I'm so excited about this. And many of the same people catching up with me today saying, this is so great, I'm so excited about this, but I am so sick inside about what this means for our world. The weight of this is cumbersome. If you're feeling that, you're feeling the bitterness that John was experiencing. Sweet in the mouth. God's showing us what he's going to do. But man, the cost is incredible. So this is John's reaction, verse 10. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. You notice an action that takes place there? God never forced John to do it. He'll never force you to read his word. He invited John to go and take it and katheo it. Consume it, John. Devour my word. He'll never force it upon you. It's your responsibility to take the action and absorb it. Consume it into your life. So wrapping up with verse 11, here's the response from the voices of heaven. This is what John's being instructed to do. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. On our very first Sunday together, when we opened up the book of Revelation, we looked at the instruction that Jesus gave John. Standing on the beach, island of Patmos, Jesus calls down to John, hey John, come on up here. I'm going to show you things which must take place. I want you to write them down. That was his first commissioning. Here you see the second one because you've reached the middle point of the tribulation and John needs this interlude to understand there's three and a half more years to come and here's how it's going to unfold and the bold judgments that are coming, just so we're clear, are far worse than anything you've learned about in the first 20 weeks. It is amazing what God is going to do to this planet, how he's going to unfold his judgment. Now you notice that John specifically wrote that he's got to 
prophesy to peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. If you go back in the first chapter, you're going to find that's much more specific than his first commissioning. Why? Because in the last half, he has to start writing about the Antichrist, the beast, the Babylon, the great city, and Satan himself, and the activities that take place on earth because the Antichrist is roaming the earth. And he begins to explain what's going on in the last three and a half years. So this exile, this old aged man in his 90s is being told, John, everything you've done, there's more to do. And he could have said, well, I'm a prisoner here. No one's ever going to hear this. He didn't argue. He did what was instructed. You have the writings today because he faithfully obeyed God. Being a voice of truth for God is a very difficult thing to do. Every one of you have been armed with information because you've been going through this study. You have details which you can speak into the lives of your friends, individuals whom you work with, you hang out with, your family members, to help them understand what's going on here. And here's the temptation, to soft sell it, to make it much simpler and much less harsh than what it is. God said, I depend upon you to faithfully declare this truth. Look at the way that he said it up on the screen, Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I'll tell you one of the heaviest things on my heart personally is watching the church of Jesus Christ today, I don't mean our church, but the church of Jesus Christ exchange the hard truth of Scripture for the five ways to improve your lifestyle teaching that's going on today. Exchanging the glory of God and the nature and character of God to help people get a better job or get a better love life. Not that God doesn't value those things, but teaching those things exclusively at the expense of not getting to the truth of what God wanted people to know that there is a final day coming, that the judgment will occur, that there is a price for sin. That's a trade I'm not willing to make. And you call me on it if you ever see it happening here. I don't ever want to exchange the truth of God for what is soft selling of the gospel because he convicts us to do no different. So here's my question for you as you leave this morning. Are you feeding personally on the word of God? Beyond Sunday morning, are you opening up your text throughout the week? Are you devouring it and consuming it? Here's what God says in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. So if we are loyal to him, if we consume his word, he will strongly defend us. I read a quote this week from a pastor in Chicago. This is the way he said it. God will not strongly defend those who will not strongly defend his word. I believe that to be the truth. So you have the opportunity to express God in a new way in your life, to go 
deeper so that you can rescue. Take the dive. Go deep into God's Word. You may not get it every time, but spend time with the Word of God, processing it, devouring it, making it part of who you are. That's what our Father calls us to. So let's go deeper together. We'll keep doing this together on Sunday. Your responsibility throughout the week, take yourself deeper each time. So here's an advanced tip for you. Read Revelation chapter 11 this week so you're ready next week when we come into it, all right? Let's pray together. Father, these warriors that are in this room who represent your kingdom desire to be bold on your behalf. And frankly, Father, it's so much easier on Sunday morning to think of all the arguments we can come up with for why we believe what we believe than it is on Monday morning at the office. So for those in this room, Father, who feel the hesitation of speaking up for you, of proclaiming truth loudly, I ask that you would be their source of strength. It can't come from our own internal core. It has to come from the source of power, your Holy Spirit. You said you would give us the words to say when the time was in need. So for the men and women in this room, for the students, for the children, God, I ask you make them mighty warriors on behalf of the kingdom who are ready to carry the sword of truth into battle to represent you well. Let us never back away from the opportunity to declare truth. Father, we're leaving this room now. We're going out into the world. The things that uh, we left behind before we came here will be very real to us as we step out of here today. Ask, Father, that you remind us that you are with us every place we go. You said you would never desert us or leave us or forsake us. So we go in that truth this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.